Uh, we come to sit under the Word for a time tonight, and we're looking tonight at Galatians. Uh, we're just entering into this new series. Tonight we are in Galatians chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 10. So this will be our third sermon in this series, and so we're getting into the, the real meat of the book. So let me read for us uh, from this letter of St. Paul, Galatians chapter 2. 1 through 10, if you want to use a pew Bible, by the way, page 972 is where you should turn. Hear God's word for you, friends. Then, after 14 years, I went up again, this is Paul, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. We need God's help to get this into our heads and into our hearts. So let's pray again and ask him for that. Father, do the work in our lives now that you promise us that you will do. Please send your spirit to illuminate our understanding of this particular part of the Bible, this letter that has been passed down from generation to generation, that's integrity has been preserved textually, that has changed the world, literally, countless times. We pray that it would change us tonight. God, we don't want that prayer to be trite. We don't want that prayer to be rote. We don't want that prayer to be void of real meaning as we say it. And so we pray for your spirit to help us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stubbornness. That's the word that comes to mind as I read Galatians chapter 2. Who's the most stubborn person you know? Don't answer that out loud and don't raise your hands. Uh, that's a rhetorical question. You know, it seems to me that stubbornness is one of those strange character traits that Sometimes, there, there's not many character traits like this, I don't think, but sometimes stubbornness is very off-putting and bothersome, and yet at other times we appreciate and even admire stubbornness. And there's plenty of examples of this. I, of course, immediately start thinking about sports figures, and uh, the person that comes to mind for me when I think of stubbornness is Pete Rose. I don't know if you know who Pete Rose is. He's probably one of the greatest baseball players to ever play. He played in the 70s and in the 80s and is the all-time leader in hits, and 
He was known for his stubbornness, for his bullheadedness on the baseball field. He would never give in. He would never give up. He was going to outwork everyone else. Even though he wasn't the best athlete, he was going to come out on top. And we admire his stubbornness on the field. But what Pete Rose is probably even better known for now is that he is a man who gambled on baseball while he was a player. And not only did he gamble on baseball, but he gambled on his own team while he was playing for them, which obviously brings some big red flags to the competitive table. And that happened 25 years ago. Pete Rose has been banned from the Hall of Fame, and yet to this very day, he still will not admit, admit in the face of, of mountains of evidence, that he ever one time gambled on baseball. And his stubbornness in that regard is extremely off-putting. It's extremely annoying. It's, it's almost flabbergasting. Maybe a way forward as we think about this character trait of stubbornness is to think about um, the issues on which we are stubborn. Maybe that's a way to differentiate whether or not our stubbornness or the stubbornness of, a, of another is a helpful thing, is a good thing, is an admirable thing, or a very dangerous and off-putting thing. Paul, in this text tonight, as I mentioned to you earlier, is stubborn. And I want to put forth to you, of course, I'm sure you expect this, that it's a good kind of stubborn. The reason that it's a good kind of stubborn is because Paul is very seriously committed to what he saw as the central issue of his life. These are not peripheral matters that we're reading about in Galatians chapter 2, but according to St. Paul, they are central. They are the very heart of his ministry, the very heart of his life, and the very heart of the Christian church. So before we dig into Galatians 2, let me remind you a little bit of where we've been. Remember, Paul planted these churches in southern Turkey, an area that used to be known as Galatia, amongst mainly Gentile people, and then he left, and after he had left, men came in and began teaching something contrary to what Paul had taught. And these men are known in the New Testament as the Judaizers. And what the Judaizers basically said was this. We hear that through St. Paul's ministry, you've come to faith in Jesus Christ. We think that's awesome. We think that's wonderful. Jesus is essential. You must believe in the Messiah risen from the dead in order to be a part of God's family, in order to be justified before God. But... What Paul didn't tell you is that Jesus is not sufficient. You must also get Judaized, so to speak. You must become Jewish. You must obey the rites and observe the boundary markers that delineate the Jewish people from all the other Gentile peoples of the world. You must observe the feasts and the Sabbaths, and particularly you must become circumcised. These things, Galatians, are necessary they said, if you're going to be right with God, if you're truly going to be a part of God's community. Paul got word of this message after he had left the churches in Galatia and was aghast. He was astonished, as he says in chapter 1, that they would so quickly abandon the gospel that he had preached to them. And so in response to this false teaching of the Judaizers, Paul writes this letter to Galatia. And we saw last time that Paul, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, enters into this really long autobiographical section. And the purpose of that section we saw last time is really for Paul to assure and remind the readers in Galatia and to remind and assure us that he is, he's legit. He's got, he's got apostolic street cred. 
so to speak. He's a, he's a man who's received his apostleship independently. He's not dependent upon any man, upon anyone in Jerusalem, upon Peter or anybody else for his apostleship. It came to him directly from Jesus Christ. And so because, so because that's true, the message that Paul brings to you, Galatians, has full authority. And so he told us a little bit about his story, about how he got the gospel there at the end of chapter 1 to remind us of his apostolic commission, of the divine call that the Lord Jesus, when he commissioned Paul, placed upon his life. And so we continue in Paul's autobiographical memoir, so to speak, tonight as we reach Galatians chapter 2. And the main idea, I think, still, in large part, is Paul reminding us of his legitimacy of an, as an apostle, but tonight... He continues his story by, by telling us about a journey that he had made to the city of Jerusalem some years earlier. And this journey had massive ramifications, not just for his future ministry, but for the mission of God's church, period, in the future. And so as we look at Galatians 2, 1 through 10, as we look at this journey to Jerusalem, I want, I want you to see three things briefly together, okay? We, we want to look at Paul's concern, Paul's companion, and Paul's Catholicity, his concern, his companion, his Catholicity. We'll look at those three things in order. So let's dive in. Verse 1, we see first Paul's concern. He's telling us what has happened to him here. Remember, he's in the middle of his autobiography, and he says, after 14 years of ministering in Syria and Cilicia, he went up again to Jerusalem. And in verse 2, he tells us why. I went up to Jerusalem after 14 years of ministry because of a revelation. So you see there that Paul's already sort of hinting at the fact again that it wasn't as if he was sort of uh, called as a lackey by the, the big dogs in Jerusalem and he just went around and followed whatever they told him to do. He, he's always got in the forefront here the idea that he is independent in his commission. He's saying, I didn't go because they commanded me to come. I didn't go because, you know, I follow their orders all the time. I went because God gave me a revelation, and that's the one, guys, whose orders I do always follow. So I went up to Jerusalem because of revelation. And what I did when I got there, he tells us in verse 2, is set before the church there in uh, Jerusalem, the gospel that I have been preaching among the Gentiles. And then he tells us that privately, before those who seemed influential, before the pillars, before the leaders of the church of Jerusalem, before these men that the Galatian, uh, that the Judaizers had likely said were the real apostles and not Paul, he privately set his gospel before them. And then he tells us there at the end of verse 2 why he did that. He was concerned to do that, he says, in order to make sure that he was not running or had not run in vain. So what does that mean? Is Paul here sort of admitting that if he goes to Jerusalem and Peter or James or John say, whoa, 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 that's not the true gospel, Paul, then he's going to say, oh, sorry, guys, I've been running in vain for the last 14 years. Is he sort of confessing that really at the end of the day he is, in a sense, their underling? Well, no. That would obviously go against everything he's been arguing to this point in the letter. What Paul's really getting at there when he says he wants to make sure that he wasn't running or had not run in vain is that he wants to make sure that unity is being preserved between him and his mission and the mother church in Jerusalem, so to speak. He, he wants to preserve uh, solidity. He doesn't want to see any fissures or cracks coming between the church there and the church that he was planting here. And so he went just to sort of compare notes regarding the gospel. 
making sure that what they were preaching and what he was preaching out on mission or, or relatively, or not relatively, are the same gospel. He wants to make sure that the unity of the church is going to pre- be preserved because he recognizes that to have a breach with the, with the mother church in Jerusalem is going to be a massive implication. It's going to be a very negative thing for the future mission to the Gentiles. And so that's Paul's concern. He's going up because God told him to go up. He's going up to, to, again, he's telling the Galatians this, to remind them that he's a legitimate apostle, and he's going up to preserve unity between him and the churches that he's planting and the big church in Jerusalem. But something interesting happened on the way to Jerusalem and once they got there. And so we see, secondly, Paul's companion. Look with me there in verse 3. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, Paul tells us, almost in passing there in verse 1, that his companions on this journey to Jerusalem were Barnabas and Titus. And this was probably just incidental. It's almost like he invited them at the last minute to sort of hop on his donkey and go up to Jerusalem with them and sort of let them see what he was going to do there as he proclaimed the gospel and met with the leaders. He wants to sort of involve them as he's training these men, particularly Titus as a leader. But something remarkable happened in that Titus sort of became a test case. He became a test case for the exact issues that the Galatian churches are now dealing with. And so we see here in verse 3 why Paul included this part of his story at all in the letter to the Galatians. He included it because it's as if he's saying here, listen, I've seen these Judaizers before. I know what their message is. Here's how I dealt with them in Jerusalem, and this is also how you should deal with them now. Now, Look and see what happens. Verse 4. Titus was not forced to be circumcised, we read, even though he was a Gentile, a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, they slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So apparently some guys had snuck into this this private meeting with those who seemed influential. It reminds me of a, this is probably an apocryphal story um, about the Council of Nicaea, which was held in 325 or so, when the, where the Nicene Creed was written. The story goes, you know, that the Arians, the bad guys, are all coming to Nicaea to meet, and Athanasius and all his crew, the Orthodox people, are coming to Nicaea to meet. And so all these priests and bishops are coming to Nicaea from all over the ancient empire. And the story goes that one of the, Athanasian priests, one of the Orthodox priests, came in to Nicaea sort of late in the game, and he has like 50 guys that are, you know, they look like bodyguards with him. And he says, you know, I'm paranoid. This, you know, fighting over doctrine has has caused my life to be threatened a number of times. So if I'm going to go into this meeting, I'm taking my bodyguards with me. And apparently he had enough credibility and uh, cachet to get his bodyguards in there. And once he got them all in there, it turns out that these guys were really priests who all had a vote doubling his bodyguards. So he sort of snuck these guys in to, to overwhelm the opposition when the vote came to it. That's kind of what it seems like is happening here. Somehow, the Judaizers get their crew in to this secret meeting. We're not sure how it happens. And they tried to compel, they tried to force Titus, who had not been circumcised, to be circumcised. And Paul, at this point, gets stubborn. No. This ain't happening as long as I'm alive. We are not doing this here or ever. 
as long as you're saying he must be circumcised in order to really be a part of God's family. We're not doing it. So Paul stands his ground. He says, I didn't yield to them even for a moment. Dick Lucas is a famous uh, older preacher in central London who's actually still alive. And he actually says that Galatians 2.6, where Paul says they added nothing to me, is the most important phrase in this entire letter. Literally, it's not an exaggeration to say that the future of the church is on the line here. If Paul had allowed this to happen, he's saying to the Galatians, everything would have been different from that point forward. So as we think about this issue that Paul's companion Titus brought up in the journey to Jerusalem, let's ask a couple of questions, and then I want to apply it a little bit, okay? So a couple of questions to understand this better. Why, first of all, are these Jewish people so intent on getting Titus circumcised. I mean, it's one thing to say, yeah, it'd be nice if he wanted to get circumcised. It's another thing to say, he must be circumcised. The word there is compel. They wanted to compel Titus, but he was not forced or compelled to be circumcised. Why? Why are they so serious about this? Well, the bottom line, uh, which probably most of you are already aware of, is that at the end of the day, they believed that unless you were circumcised, Unless you became Jewish, you were not right with God. Unless you observe the boundary markers, unless you obey the works of the law, you cannot be justified and you cannot sit at table with Jewish people. And they would have said to Paul, listen, Paul, we're just obeying what the Bible says. Haven't you read Deuteronomy? Don't you know the story of Ezra, where he forced all those people to get circumcised and he even said you have to divorce your unbelieving lives? We're just, trying, we're just trying to obey the Bible, Paul. You're the one who's missing the boat. So in a sense, they seemed very orthodox, very conservative, very concerned for what the word says. But Paul says, no, no, you've, you've missed the boat. So they're concerned with forcing Titus to be circumcised because they hadn't yet begun to read the Bible in light of Jesus. And so they still think that Jewishness equals Christian. So they're also concerned then to get Titus to be circumcised. Maybe another way of looking at this issue, another reason they're so, they're so concerned about this, about forcing and compelling it, is because they believe that there's only one legitimate cultural expression of Christianity. Um, as I just said, in order to be a Christian, you must be not just culturally Jewish, but actually physically Jewish or grafted in, right? And they had, they had missed the boat, the boat of Pentecost, which says, as what Paul was saying, that there is now no longer a single valid cultural expression of Christianity like there once was when God's people were a particular nation, the nation of Israel. Now, since Pentecost, every culture is exposed or should be exposed to Christianity, and every culture can accept Christianity without abandoning their culture and becoming Jewish. Maybe a way to say that very simply is for, um, for the Judaizers, um, let me make sure I get this right. For the Judaizers, Christianity must be Jewish, but for Paul, Christianity must not be tied to any culture. So these guys want Titus to get circumcised. Because they think that only through that observance of the works of the law will he ever be right with God and will he ever be a part of the community of God. So that's why they're so forcible. Second question, why is Paul so stubborn? <laughs> why, is he so, why is he so adamant at this point on refusing to allow Titus 
to participate in what could have been considered just to be sort of a cultural, a piece of cultural acquiescence. You know, he could have said, yeah, these guys think this is really important. It's okay for you to look Jewish. You can still be a Christian. But he says, no, no. Why? It's because Paul realizes here, he gets what very few people got at that point, fundamentally, that in order for Titus to, to be circumcised, if he were to, to acquiesce here, he would have been admitting, he would have been admitting that peace with God requires something more than the mere grace of God. Look at the language he uses. He says, These guys were secretly brought in, verse 4, they slipped in to spy out our what? Our freedom that we have in Christ in order to what? To bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment. To them, we at, they added nothing to us. We, we stood our ground. He's, he's being adamant here. He's being stubborn here because he knows that to add anything to the free offer of the gospel received by faith and nothing but faith is to take the gospel. He knows that were Titus to be held to some standard or rule or law, other than simply trusting in the work of Jesus for his salvation, then Titus would no longer experience the freedom that Jesus and Jesus alone brings. And so Paul is stubborn regarding his companion. A couple of things for us to think about as we think about this part of the Bible. First thing, there is, it seems that this text clearly implies, that there is what I'll call a hard objectivity to the gospel. Um, there are some things that must be believed to be true in order for the gospel to be believed and in order for you to be called a Christian. One of those things is that a man, as Paul says again and again and again in this text, is justified not by works of law, but by faith. And as Paul is saying, fundamentally, some people don't agree with that and they are outside of our camp. Some people do agree with it and they are inside of our camp. There is an obje a hard objectivity to the gospel. And that is very bothersome to many. Maybe it's bothersome to you. Paul's very, very adamant about that throughout this letter. We've already seen that. Uh, many today, maybe you're thinking this, and to be honest, I have a lot of sympathy with this. I can understand where you're coming from and this is what you're thinking right now. Maybe you're thinking... Um, you know, to me, this hard objectivity talk just sounds lifeless. Uh, what, what to me really matters is, is the sincerity with which we believe what we believe. Um, you know, what you believe and what I believe may differ a little bit. They may differ a lot. But I think what really matters to God is whether or not we really, really sincerely believe it. Whether or not our heart is in it. You've probably heard that. Maybe you think that. And I have a lot of respect for that position because it makes a lot of sense in some ways. But it's not what Paul's saying here. It has to be countered with this idea of objectivity. Let me give you an example or an illustration that might help. Imagine that it's a cold, cold winter day in, say, Minnesota or Wisconsin. And there's two guys standing out on a frozen lake. One guy's standing on six inches of ice. And he's really, really, really confident He's very, very sincere in his belief that that ice is going to hold him. And the other guy is standing with a really, really shaky faith, with legs that are quaking on, uh, on six feet of ice. So 
So one guy's on half an inch of ice. Did I say six inches earlier? I meant half an inch. Ice thin enough that you'll fall through. That's the point, okay? He's standing on a thin sheet of ice and is very, very sincere. He's very, very confident that what he believes is true. And the other guy's standing on a really, really, really thick sheet of ice and is really, really doubtful. (laughs) Who's going to fall through? Not the guy who's sincere, the guy who's standing on something that's objectively thick. All of us are standing on ice. Uh, The sincerity of how thick we believe the ice is or how strong the ice is to hold us up is one thing, but whether or not the ice is really thick is another. Paul is saying here there is an objectivity to faith that you must grasp, that you must take hold of. A second piece of application, I want to spend a little bit more time here, and then we'll look at the third point really quickly. And I I really, um, this is where I got kind of rocked this week looking at this text. Uh, maybe I'll just ask it this way. Do you see why Paul's so stubborn? Um, and I know that most of you would say, yes, I understand what this text is saying objectively. But I really want you to, to feel it viscerally. Listen, to add to the gospel is to take away the gospel. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Paul's fear here is slavery. So look at your hearts. Let's let's look at our hearts and consider how this can apply because it's my belief that we functionally add to the gospel all the time. Think on it. Um, What in your life Do you want to bring before God as a testimony to your own righteousness and acceptability apart from Jesus? And you might say, well, nothing, Luke. Let me ask it another way. When you're feeling really bad and things are going poorly and you're wondering whether or not you've got what it takes to make it, what do you fall back on that makes you think, yeah, I'm doing okay? That is your functional righteousness. That's the ice that you're standing on. You know, I've got a young family, and the more I'm around young families, the more I'm around my family, I'm persuaded that for some of us, our functional righteousness is being good parents and raising good kids. We think, everything's gone south, I can't keep a steady job, I don't have any spiritual discipline, but at least my kids are going to obey me. When you're saying, that's going to make me okay, you are enslaving yourself. You're enslaving yourself to to robo-kids. You're enslaving yourself to to unrealistic expectations. You're enslaving yourself to trusting in other little people to make you feel like you're acceptable. You've got a ball and a chain walking around with you all the time when you're trusting in your own parenting ability or in the obedience and the way your kids act in public to make you feel like you're okay. Some of you, particularly given what Phil preached this morning about the religious folks, some of you think from time to time, maybe very often, that your functional righteousness lies in how committed you are to serving this church. Some of you think when you're feeling really, really bad, when you don't feel like you're measuring up spiritually, I go to Sunday school every week, I've given my life to that church. I've given money to that church. I was on the building campaign. I pray for people. I am doing okay, at least when it comes to being a church member. 
You're a slave. You, you are a slave to, to the tyranny of um, being in control. You're always wanting a seat at the place of power. Or you have sort of a martyrdom complex and have a need to be needed that can't really be satiated. I suspect that there's some of you whose functional righteousness, the thing that you want to bring before God and say, God, look at this, I'm okay, is your doctrinal knowledge and precision and theological insights. And hey, I'm at the front of the bus when it comes to doctrinal precision and theological insights. But when you say things are going really badly for me, but at least I'm a Calvinist, I get tulip. I know the five points of Calvinism. I've read a lot of thick books that are entitled Systematic Theology, and they're by Dutch and Scottish guys that have been dead for 200 years. I've got all my I's dotted and my T's crossed. At least I'm doing okay here. Well, for one thing, you don't get Calvinism. <laughs> because Calvinism always says, you are a much, much bigger mess than you think, and God's grace is much, much more needed by you than you think. So the moment you start thinking, you know, I'm doing pretty well theologically, <laughs> and using that in a sense of self-justification, you've become a slave to the tyranny of making sure that you've got everything figured out right now, and you're unapproachable, and you're arrogant, and it's very likely that the more and more and more you read with this sort of mindset, the less and less and less you really care about people. What is it for you? I'll tell you. I'll tell you what it is for me. Well, there's a lot of things, but one, one of my functional righteousness things is success. Success in ministry. And I do that all the time. I tell myself, I screamed at my wife this morning. I've ignored my kids all afternoon. I didn't have a quiet time. I'm doing terribly, but at least people like my preaching. At least I'm seeing people get converted through my ministry. At least the church is growing. At least we are paying down the mortgage. At least I'm having success. At least other pastors respect me. God, you should bless me. This ought to be enough. Look at this. All the time. All the time and in all sorts of ways, we are looking for something other than the righteousness of Jesus Christ to bring to God so that he will say, well done. You are beloved. You are a part of my family. All the time, we're looking for something other than the righteousness of Jesus Christ to, look at, to, to give to ourselves so that we will be okay with where we are spiritually or emotionally or relationally. You see, all of these things, all of these ways that we are functional idolaters, all of these ways that we add things to the gospel fail to get grace. They fail to get what Paul got all of these examples fail to grasp that the gospel comes literally, literally, listen, it comes completely apart from our merits. And when you don't get that, you don't get the freedom of the gospel. Only the grace of the gospel brings the freedom of the gospel. And when you can simply rest in Jesus, you can stop worrying so much about how you see yourself, about how others see you, and about how God sees you. Because you know that God sees you through Jesus' glasses. Paul got it. And his companion Titus got it. The Judaizers didn't. 
So we see Paul's concern. We see Paul's companion. And I want to show you real quick Paul's catholicity. Paul's catholicity, especially in verses 7 through 10, we see that. Uh, and I think this is a really important concept. It's often overlooked and maybe even shunned uh, in our tradition. Uh, but throughout this text, what I want you to see is that Paul is deeply concerned with the unity of the church, the unity of the church Catholic with Catholicity, um, as Jesus prayed in John 17. That might not be apparent on the surface, but the whole reason, remember, he went up to Jerusalem is to make sure that he had not run in vain, to be sure that they were on the same page on the central issue of the gospel, to preserve unity. And it's also very apparent there in verses 7 through 10 when he says that they agreed with Paul's take on the gospel. Peter and James and John said, yes, we're with you, Paul. Titus should not be forced to be circumcised. Righteousness comes through faith in Jesus and not through obedience to the works of the law. And then look at what happens there. They had a good time together. They gave each other the right hand of fellowship. They said, Paul, you go and do your ministry. I'm going to stay here in Jerusalem and do my ministry. They had unity on the core. They had unity on what was central. They had unity, Catholicity on the gospel. And think about it, their ministries would have looked extremely differently. They were in extremely different contexts. The way that secondary matters, the way that cultural matters would have affected their ministries would have been vastly different. They have all kinds of divergence and diversity on all kinds of issues, but they have unity on the core. They have unity on the gospel. And that's what you've got to see. You've got to see that Paul is stubborn on the central thing and he's willing to concede on a lot of other things, both culturally and both with secondary theological issues. And I'm afraid that oftentimes we are really, really, really stubborn on mere cultural expressions or on secondary theological issues that are important but not central. And we might even waver a little bit on what is central. Paul never goes there. Peter, James, and John never go there. They are intent on preserving Catholicity. They want unity. They give each other the right hand of fellowship. And you know, I got to say, just as we wrap up, I think there's some, there's some good things happening in our day, in our churches, in that regard. Um, I'm always reminded of when I was first coming into sort of the Reformed tradition and reading and listening. I listened to a debate on baptism, a secondary issue, between John MacArthur, who's not a Pado-Baptist and R.C. Sproul, who is a Pado-Baptist. And I, this is like ingrained in my mind. I'll never forget that one thing R.C. said is that we have utter unity, John and I, on the gospel, on justification, on what the core is. We differ strongly on this issue, but we love each other. And they made that a major point. And I think that's a wonderful thing that we should all strive for. Um, there's other movements in our day that are very, very helpful in increasing unity and increasing Catholicity. The Gospel Coalition is one of many. Uh, it's a movement of many denominations, of many different churches who are uniting on the gospel. They are, they are uniting on the central thing, and they differ on all sorts of other things. Uh, the way Brett Hawley put it to me a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about another secondary issue is this. There's doctrines you would die for, the gospel. There's doctrines you would divide over, and there's doctrines you debate. And I think a healthy church has unity on the doctrines that you die for. It has unity on the doctrines you would divide over. And it has all kinds of loving, healthy debate on doctrines that you should debate. That's what Paul and Peter had. They were united fundamentally on the core. And they definitely would have had some different cultural expressions. 
And when Paul, Peter falls away from the core, as he's going to do next time we look at Galatians, Paul gets after him. So as we close, maybe here's a question for us to ask. What are you going to be stubborn over? Over a church looking like the church you want it to look like? Over a church singing the things you want them to sing? Over a church um, having practices that are cultural, culture-laden? Are you going to get really riled up about those things? Are you going to get super, super, super angry when people disagree with you about things like baptism, about things like charismatic gifts, about things like church government? Or are you going to show grace and charity on those matters, be willing to debate those matters, and be very, very stubborn when it comes to the gospel? I hope that's where we end up, because that's certainly where Paul is. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we do thank you that in the Word we see the radical impact that meeting Jesus has on people. We see that for Paul, it completely changed him, so much so that he turned a complete about-face and went in the very opposite direction that he had once been traveling in. Whereas he once persecuted those who proclaimed Jesus as Lord, now he proclaims Jesus as Lord throughout the world. Whereas he once hated those who said that only grace is necessary. Only grace is necessary to be made right with God. Now he is the main purveyor of that belief in human history. And Father, we pray that as those who have had experiences like Paul, who have been changed by grace, we too would hold firmly, tenaciously, adamantly, stubbornly to the gospel. That we would love it. And that we would repent of the many functional idols and functional righteousnesses that we attempt to bring to you and bring to ourselves and bring to others in order for you to say, you're okay. Oh God, teach us more of the freedom that comes from simply knowing that we are not okay except when we are found in Jesus and that that has nothing to do with our efforts or merits. It has nothing to do with our lack. It has nothing to do with our plenty. It has everything to do with him. Oh God, may that free us to new life and change the way we think about you and about others and about ourselves. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.